Hi everybody and welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alf, the founder of the Macro Compass and as always with me, my buddy Andreas Steno, founder of Steno Research. Alf, we have a bunch of abbreviations back in the limelight from the Federal Reserve balance sheet. But why don't we start with a discussion on the Fed meeting uh, just last week and um, the ramifications of the communication from Jay Powell. Um, it was kind of a roller coaster watching it. Uh, it was also a roller coaster watching the market reaction to the press conference, not least. And um, I noted that as soon as Jay Powell started talking about or discussing the whole situation about um, deposits and whether they are safe or guaranteed in banks, um, markets started puking. Until then, it was actually a pretty uh, decently um, contained meeting, in my in my opinion. So, yeah. what do you make of it? The overall take I have there is that something has changed in the Fed reaction function, and you can see it from I think two things. In the summary of economic projections, you have a lower unemployment rate and higher core inflation, marginally so. Nevertheless, no change in the median dot plot for 2023, at least. So that tells me on the margin that members are a bit more reluctant in chasing this higher for longer story. But most importantly, the language used by Powell Andreas was more like, you know, I am proactively prudent mm. here. And that is something we haven't heard from the Fed for more than a year. It was on autopilot, just hike, you bring rates above core inflation, you need to do that, that's your only objective. And well, the discussion was much more nuanced. This time, I think something has changed. The Fed is very well aware they might have broken something for real. And also, the other thing that I, well, I found particularly interesting said Powell basically delegated to markets from now on, what are they going to do? He almost made himself hostage to the market mood for what the Fed is going to go to, uh, going to be uh, doing over the next few meetings, which is, can be quite dangerous, I think, as a game. He delegated to markets and he basically said, you know, we're going to assess what is the impact, what is the tightening of financial conditions. It means I'm going to assess where credit spreads, where you guys are pushing credit spreads, where you guys are pushing bank stock prices. I'm going to be looking at that to assess what the damage done is. So he's delegating to markets, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, so we need to watch sort of broad financial conditions ahead of the next few Fed meetings, but we also need to watch uh, what I tend to label credit surveys. Uh, so when you ask banks for uh, sort of the net approach to lending standards relative to the month prior. I think that is something the Fed will take notice of if they tighten lending standards even more than what they've already done, because that was basically the second line in the press release that uh, now we expect banks to take very conservative decisions. And if that happens, I think the hiking cycle is over, to be honest, um, because they expect the banks, uh, he even said it explicitly, they expect the banks to do some of the hiking for them now. Yes, yes. So look, the Fed is acutely aware that banking stress of any sort is disinflationary mm. through the channel of credit creation. So what you basically do is 
as a bank, if you are worried that your liquidity situation might worsen, you allocate more resources, more capital to make sure that your balance sheet is somehow stronger. You for sure do not deplete capital to increase your lending book if you are in a stressful situation. When that happens, the rate of change of credit creation is negative. Caveat, it was already negative mm. before the banking stress, at least looking at my credit impulse index at the macro compass, the story gets exacerbated further here. And so the Fed knows this. It's interesting that they are not waiting for this to happen, Andreas. They're basically saying, we know it's going to happen. We know that this is going to basically be tightening conditions already. So as you said, banks will be doing some of the tightening on behalf of the Fed. So the Fed seems to be much more on a delegating kind of situation, just stepping back and say, look, I'm proactively prudent here. That's quite a change. And, and Elf, that could be one of the reasons why we often see markets selling off into the very first stage of a easing, an easing cycle. Uh, since, I mean, now that the Fed has communicated that um, they are perfectly aware of banks now taking conservative decisions, that the liquidity stress is an issue for banks and that it will likely lead to disinflation in quarters ahead. They've also told us that they think something is not too good in the system, right? Um, so it's not really a sign of comfort for investors when the Fed acknowledges it. Um, do they know something we don't know? You always get that discussion when they start talking like this. Yeah. Okay, let's now talk about what we know, what yeah. we can observe in the data, yeah. all right? Let's try to do that, because both you and I have done quite some work on the numbers, so let's try to bring the audience in on what we can observe. Yeah. I'm going to revert back the question to you on the Fed balance sheet, because now, all of a sudden, everybody's going to become an expert on money matters, which can be pretty complex. So let me ask you for a second, because you're doing quite some work on it, give us an update on what is happening on a Fed balance sheet. So the ad asset base is now increasing again, um, mostly due to what I call emergency lending to counterparts, uh, both via the new lending program, uh, the BTFP, as uh, so the term funding program for, for banks, where they can post bonds as collateral uh, and gain a one-year loan plus uh, Fed funds plus 10 basis points um, as a uh, in return from uh, from the Fed, right? And um, that's one part. Uh, that part of the balance sheet has increased. Um, not a big surprise when you introduce a new program during uh, a bit of stress that it will be utilized to a certain extent. The surprise this week uh, was the utilization of the so-called FIMA uh, I warned you that we would have a lot of abbreviations in the program this week. And um, it is linked to the foreign international monetary authorities. Um, and it is essentially a program designed to deliver dollar liquidity to official counterparts outside of US borders uh, that do not already have a swap line in place with the Federal Reserve. Um, so swap lines are in place with the big Western central banks, but uh, this FEMA program um, allows other central banks around the globe to tap liquidity in the um, in the Fed uh, in return for collateral in a repo. And the 
the interesting thing here is we we actually don't know which central bank uh, decided to take up 60 billion worth of, of dollar liquidity. It's quite a lot. Uh, they've basically maxed out uh, the cap uh, of a single counterpart. Um, the cap is increased to 500 billion in this program, as far as I'm concerned, but only 60 per counterpart. And I mean, you could guess from now and until the uh, end of the year on, on which central bank it was. My guess is that it's Turkey, uh, but it could have been it could have been China even. I guess uh, they they will have access via this if they have the right right collateral to post. Uh, so quite interesting that a non-Western central bank is in uh, the need for dollar liquidity. It probably means that local players, uh, local banks, need dollar liquidity. Um, to a certain extent. And therefore, this is probably the reason why we here uh, on Friday where we record see this uh, turmoil uh, resurfacing in markets again. I think it's it's very much linked to this surprise move uh, from the balance sheet that some probably major non-Western central bank took up a lot of dollar liquidity yesterday. That could be a signal of stress. Yeah. So... The Fed, let's talk first about the dollar facilities. Uh, the Fed has swap lines with uh, friendly other central banks, let's say mostly Bank of England, ECB, the Swiss National Bank, and these kind of large developed market economies banks, right? They have dollar swap lines, and these swap lines have not really been taken up at all, to be honest. Like yeah. Japan has drawn zero. Uh, Europe, a few millions. Uh, you know, really Mickey Mouse numbers so far. Switzerland has drawn, I think, 100 million or so, a bit more. We are talking about negligible numbers anyway. Um, so, so far, it seemed that the dollar funding stress was not really there. And this is also visible from market indicators. So it, it can be a bit complex, but let's try to break it down. If you're a European bank, for instance, Andreas, you, over the past seven years, you were looking for yields. And one way to generate yield was to lend in dollars because dollar rates were much higher mm. than European rates. You were looking to expand your dollar lending business. But as a European bank, sometimes you don't have dollar deposits, right? You're looking for dollar funding, dollar liabilities to fund this loan book. Now, one way to do that, a very popular one, is to use cross-currency markets. So those are effectively funding mechanisms, to make it very simple, where you get funding in dollar in a cross-currency swap transaction. Now, in periods of stress, you have banks generally bidding up this dollar funding from the market because it's a quick way to obtain your dollars when you need them. And if you look at the stress that has been going on recently in these markets, well, it had, they have become a bit more stressed, but there was no sign of panic, let's say, in this cross-currency um, swap markets. Also reflected in the fact that dollar swap lines haven't been taken up massively, but now we got a surprise. $60 billion from a non, well, non-friendly, let me call that, a central bank that doesn't have a swap line with the Fed. Yeah, that's one thing already to notice. Um, most importantly, I wanted to take a step back and talk about, rather than the cross-border situation where we don't have a lot of clarity uh, yet, let's talk about the domestic drivers of the Fed balance sheet because there has been some moves there between reserve repos, uh, the new facility set up by the Fed, the discount window. So let we, let's try and help people to understand what's really going on there. So. Ball back in your court. Where do you want to start? Uh, let me just add one thing on the cross-border stuff before we, we get to the domestic stuff. Um, 
my impression is that the swap lines between the Federal Reserve and uh, Western Central Banks um, are priced at minus 50 basis points uh, equivalent to the cross-currency basis market, right? Uh, so you pay 50 basis points on, t- on top of the dollar rates to, yeah. uh, to obtain the liquidity. Uh, and the market pricing is simply cheaper still um, in, in most jurisdictions, which is why we probably haven't seen the utilization of these swap lines yet. Let me emphasize yeah. yet. Um, but moving to the domestic stuff, um, which is probably even more interesting still, uh, in, in, in my opinion. Um, what we've been busy with over the past week or two is to assess on a running basis whether there is a deposit flight from banks, mostly into money market funds. Um, and, I mean, let me just uh, make something clear. It's, it's not uh, atypical to see a move from saving accounts to money market funds in times of high yielding uh, periods. Um, it's it's rather normal um, since banks try not to follow uh, Fed funds rates uh, one-to-one in times of an inverted yield curve. Uh, a typical bank would like to uh, have a at least positively sloping yield curve to be able to make money. And when the yield curve inverts, um, the natural thing for the bank to do is to keep the deposit rate lower than the far end of the yield curve to have sort of an artificial positively sloping yield curve. Um, And that is why we don't see uh, yields on savings accounts and checking accounts being more than 0.5, 0.6% on average in the US. And you need to um, compare that to a money market fund, uh, which yields now probably 4%, but yielded 5% plus just a few weeks ago. And obviously when there's such a spread, uh, you slowly but surely get some flows moving from banks to money market funds. The issue is that the pace is rather high right now. Uh, We're talking plus 100 billion a week to money market funds. Um, And a way of uh, showing that on a daily basis is to watch the uh, daily usage of the overnight reverse repo facility at the Federal Reserve, uh, because that facility is um, mostly used if uh, by, by money market funds and the modular moves that we see are often driven by money market funds. So if they park more money on the overnight reverse repo, it could be a sign that they've received inflows and they struggle to place those money in uh, actual money market positions such as T-bills. T-bills, yeah. yeah. And... Um, Therefore, uh, when we see a, a, a sharp upwards move in, in, in the use of this uh, overnight reverse repo facility, it could be an early signal that we actually see inflows to money market funds. The, the other side of the coin here is that the Fed has now uh, basically opened the door uh, for banks uh, meeting uh, those deposit flights with uh, liquidity from the Fed directly in this new collateralized lending program called the BTFP. Uh, so... If you're a bank and a depositor uh, wants to remove the money, you can essentially just post um, a T-bill or a, um, a T-bond uh, in return for, for liquidity to match that uh, deposit outflow instead of selling the bond. Uh, and that is why we see an increase in emergency lending alongside the move from deposits into money market funds. I think that's the short version of what's ongoing right now. Uh, The moves are relatively large, also larger than anticipated by the Fed. They released a research paper in July 22, uh, expecting roughly 600 billion to move from deposits to money market funds. We are now already far uh, beyond that 600 billion mark. Um, So 
it is happening much faster than anticipated by the Fed. Now, two additions from my end. The first is, uh, in our system, you have basically two forms of money. Uh, you have a bank deposit, which is a, an unsecured liability of a bank above $250,000. And you have money as a liability of the government, being a T-bill, a money market fund, any other sort of basically implicitly or explicitly guaranteed liability of the government of the United States. Those are the two forms of money. Cash, I'm not going to consider it that much because it accounts for little, I mean, less and less of transactions in the real economy. So what happens is when the safer forms of money, which is the liability of the government, not of the bank, actually also yields much more than the bank deposit, then obviously you're going to move some of your money into T-bills, into money market funds. That's basically what you have been saying, Andreas. It's normal. It happens in every hiking cycle. Also because... Money market funds are in the business of assets under management and fees. So they do have an incentive to offer high returns because the higher the return they offer, the more money they attract, actually the more fees they make. A bank is in the business of return of e on equity, which is a different story mm. because if you raise your deposit rates, you're going to eat into your net interest margin and you're going to basically slowly but surely shrink your return on equity for investors if your cost of funding goes up and your returns on assets can't be that high because the curve is inverted. So obviously the incentive schemes are different, right? So money market funds are going to offer higher yields. They're safer investments, safer forms of money. Money goes there. Thing is, we have seen over $200 billion in two weeks flow into money market funds. And as you said, that's pretty rapid in the first place. So now let's talk about banks because banks will be losing deposits. And until now, Andreas, most of the deposit loss has not been at small banks. It mm -hmm. has been at large banks. Why? Because large banks even don't have, have even a less, a lower incentive to reward deposits, which means because they can diversify their funding away, because they, they really don't want to <laughs> reward these deposits, they're likely to lose them a little bit faster. That's what happened so far. At this point, though, we're talking about something different. We're talking about small banks at risk of losing deposits. Mm. And those small banks are also the ones that are less regulated and in general perhaps a bit less prudent when it comes to balance sheet risk management. Not only the health to maturity bond losses, please guys, those are like 10% of the balance sheet of a bank at best. Just look at the overall balance sheet, but even then, they are less sophisticated, Andreas. They will not be hedging rate risk probably as good as JP Morgan or Goldman no, Sachs, sure. right? So you're, you're looking at this bifurcation, and that's going to be the interesting thing. Um, let's talk about the Fed facility, though, because you hinted into that. And look, there are basically two ways you can post collateral at the Fed um, and get funding. Well, famously, the discount window. Mm -hmm where you can post about anything you have, inc including credit claims and like lower rated securities to the Fed and get funding. But obviously you get a market haircut mm. and you got to post margins as well against this collateral that you're posting at the Fed. And you get funding at the top of the Fed fund rate. Mm. So, you know, it's been used actually quite a lot. And this week, what we saw is a shift between the discount window and the new yes. facility created by the Fed. 
and that makes sense to me, mate. I mean, obviously you can post less collateral in the BTFP. You can only post treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and basically government-guaranteed agency debt. That's what you can post. You can't post lower-rated corporate bonds and credit claims. You can't post those, but you can post them without market collateral, which, sorry, without market haircut, which is massive, if you ask me, and without basically any margins. And you get funding cheaper, and you get funding longer, because the discount window is only for 90 days, and the BTFP is for one year, if you want to roll it all the way up to one year. And it's cheaper. So you're seeing this, but look, the fact that this facility exists does not make you comfortable that the liquidity crisis is hard to engineer or do you think there is still a way that this could turn into a systemic liquidity crisis no i i, I struggle to see a scenario where this turns into a systemic liquidity crisis and i suppose that uh this is the lesson learned from 2008 2009 as soon as you see signs of stress in the financial system just flow liquidity into the system and we're good right uh, so this is uh, a typical sign that generals and officials, they always fight the last war. Uh, they, they look at the last crisis that they've been a part of and uh, they use the playbook from that crisis to try and solve this one. Um, we, we discussed before we, we press record here, Elf, whether this is a liquidity crisis and I, well, you could say that it was initially a, a brief liquidity crisis. That part of the equation is now solved, if you ask me. I mean, uh, most banks, if not all counterparties, will will have eligible collateral to post in these liquidity facilities, so they would be stupid not to utilize them um, in, in case of emergency. And therefore, this is probably more a question of whether confidence between clients and banks will, uh, will remain or not. Uh, and... I think this is the exact reason why we see these very sharp sell-offs every time uh, Janet Yellen or Jay Powell is asked about the, the guarantees and the safety of deposits in small and regional uh, banks, etc. Uh, Jay Powell, um, I think he more or less aced the press conference until the question where he was asked whether he could provide a guarantee for small depositors uh, in, in, in some of these banks. And obviously he cannot. I mean, it's it's an impossible question to tackle. Uh, Janet Yellen received the same question a couple of times and she also uh, struggled big time uh, to find something clever to say. I mean, because you, you, you cannot say, well, we guaranteed them all because that you don't want to say that either. <laughs> um, so uh, I think this is the issue now. Do we think that there is a confidence crisis between banks and clients? I think there is to a certain extent. It's not out of control, but there is a, a crisis to a certain extent. Uh, and if that crisis accelerates, um, I mean, you, you can you can provide all the liquidity in the world to a regional bank, um, and that regional bank will likely be able to meet deposit flights. Uh, but if all deposits leave the regional bank, the bank is no more at some point, right? Yeah. Obviously. So, so we discussed before the podcast, Andreas. What's the trigger? Mm. Because if it's a credit event, then the trigger is very clear. Like take two thousand and eight. Um, you get large leverage on the real estate market, the collateral value, so the house prices basically start coming down, credit freezes, and it's easy to understand how the snowball effect works. And it's also easy to understand the Fed can't do anything on a credit deleveraging event. I mean, 
The Fed can't backstop the value of the collateral. It can't backstop house prices. It's just a deleveraging effect, right? And it happens. It just hits everything. And as you said, I really find that insightful. It's banks against banks. It's banks having exposure to products where other banks are behind. It's a confidence crisis between banks with a credit deleveraging event behind. Can't do much about it, Andreas. That's the trigger. It happens. It's gone. Now we're talking about so far a liquidity crisis and both I think of us agree that the Fed has the facilities to backstop that part. Mm. I mean, you post the collateral at the Fed, you get funding, no haircuts. It's pretty good, I think, as a backstop. The issue is if this turns into a confidence crisis where people are afraid that their deposits are at risk, then there is no bank that can sustain a large sustained bank run. It just doesn't work. Now, I'm trying to think what would, what would be necessary for this noble effect of confidence loss to actually turn out to be true. I mean, what's needed? What I see now is basically bifurcation. Is like, you know, if either it gets real bad on a confidence level and then the snowball actually starts and it's very hard to stop, or nothing happens for two to three weeks, no banks go, you know, in uh, receivership from the FDIC, and then what? I mean, how is this supposed to cascade on the way down if there is no trigger? That's what I'm asking myself. The, the issue, as far as I see it, is that, uh, and now I need my tinfoil hat again, Alf, I need it every week. <laughs> but the issue is that we effectively have some sort of pseudo central bank digital currency in place with the overnight reverse repo facility uh, for money market funds because it's, it's much, much easier to move your money, uh, digitally speaking, from a bank to a money market fund than it was in 2007, for example, when we had a major spread between money market funds and saving accounts as well. So um, the marginal decision-making is much swifter uh, and it is also easier to get the message across to a truckload of people at the same time. Um, I mean, even some of the partners that we've had on this show have been very, very vocal. Please move the money to our uh, money market fund-like setup because you get this and this yield, right? Um, so I think the risk of a large move from deposits to money market funds is is much higher now than it's been historically uh, since it's simply uh, just a lot, whole lot easier. Um, and then... The second thing is that uh, as soon as a couple of banks uh, blow up, um, you get a lot of focus on it uh, and you get uh, a lot of focus uh, from from both regional and very, very local politicians on the uh, subject matter. And uh, I still watch this uh, hearing from Janet Yellen in Congress almost daily uh, where James Landmark told, uh, told her, well, my constituency in Oklahoma, can we expect the same kind of uh, guarantees that you gave uh, your friends in Silicon Valley? And she was unable to say yes, of course. Uh, and I think that was one of the worst uh, one-minute clips for the confidence in the financial system I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, because it kind of showcased how tricky it is to run a fractional reserve system with a truckload of small banks across such a big country because you cannot handle all situations in the same way. And essentially Yellen admitted to that without really saying it. Yes. 
Well, one last thing I want to say about this before we move to Europe, because there has been quite some <laughs> banking situations in Europe too to chat about, is that uh, the balance sheet of the central of the Federal Reserve has increased by a lot um, recently. But no, this is not QE. No, no. I need to say that. So I'm going to make this rant. Um, here you post existing collateral and you get funding for it. That's the Federal Reserve facility. So what the Federal Reserve is doing is, is basically taking the collateral back from the system and guaranteeing its value. It's saying the collateral is worth 100 cents on the dollar. I don't care what the market says. I don't care about haircuts. It's 100 cents. It basically strengthens the value of the collateral. It ensures that it's valuable. That's what it does. QE, well, it just takes it out of the system basically for an indefinite period of time. I mean, the central bank buys the bonds, take, locks them away. They're gone from the system until they sell them back. Well, we have seen how long does it take normally to sell them back. And it also extracts duration from the market, which this program doesn't do. The duration risk remains on the private sector to absorb. It's just that the collateral gets strengthened. So they're not nearly the same thing. They're not intended also to generate the same impact on markets. And I'm, I feel I have to say this, Andreas, because it's very easy now to draw a couple of lines and say, oh, the balance sheet is up, QE is back. Well, mm. this is not QE. It's intended to do something else, which is important, but it's not QE. Uh, I, I obviously fully agree with, with your assessment. Um, what I struggle with is how to assess the impact on cross-asset uh, appetite after such a liquidity yeah. injection because I don't think it's worth zero. Um, it, it matters to, uh, first of all, from a psychological perspective, but also probably a bit on the marginal uh, pricing of, of, of risk assets. But it's it's certainly not as <laughs> solid a signal for, for risk assets as QE. That's That's goes without saying, I think. Yeah. Let's talk about Europe, yeah. shall we? So... Uh, Credit Suisse has been bought by uh, UBS for a three billion something dollar equivalent old share deal, a zillion of credit uh, loss guarantees by the Swiss government, liquidity provisions, whatever you want, Andrea. So it looks on the surface like a pretty decent deal, <laughs> or at least a government-engineered deal to make it convenient for UBS to say yes. But what people are pretty uh, getting spooked about is this. Uh, waterfall treatment, which is really not meeting the standard you would expect where you uh, get additional tier one investors wiped out and you get equity investors left with some, some small residual value in their stock investments of Credit Suisse. So your take on the additional tier one market, what it means, is it dead, uh, whatever. Nah, go ahead, I'll tell my opinion later. <laughs> uh, let me say, first of all, um, for those of you who watched the press conference between uh, the authorities, UBS, Credit Suisse, etc., uh, I had the impression that no one wanted to be there. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it looked like a funeral, to be honest, and probably also yeah. was a funeral to a certain extent. Uh, but never mind. Um, when it comes to these additional T1 bonds, uh, first of all, go have a look at Credit Suisse investor material. They rank 81 bonds on top of equities from a risk perspective upside down. And that is pretty clearly communicated in the investor material, if you ask me. What you need to 
also understand is that uh, from a legislative perspective, it's only UBS, so the other Swiss bank and Credit Suisse, um, that have that uh, will have the ability to just write off ATF, uh, AT1 debt um, before equity. Uh, so the, say, Barclays and the Deutsche Banks of Europe would not have the same possibility in a similar situation from a legislative perspective, as far as I can understand. And I've checked this with uh, people with, with an interest in, in the legal aspects of this. So to me, it seems like a bigger story than it actually is, since there is this difference in the uh, legislation between the uh, two Swiss major banks and what you see across the European continent otherwise. But uh, I mean, the market reaction was pretty clear. Yeah, you can just go have a look at the CDS uh, on the unsecured part of the Deutsche Bank uh, debt basket. It is not looking pretty as we speak. Uh, so of course the ramifications are there, um, but to me, I consider them a bit overblown, but people uh, investing in 81s are apparently very, very surprised that they could get away with this, even with what was written in the investor material. This is so funny. So my first reaction is, this is the byproduct of negative interest rates in Europe between 2014 and 2021. I mean, like you were looking for yield, basic, and I'm not sure that everybody read the documents, but if they did read the document, Andres, it's very clear that Swiss additional tier one bonds have the so-called permanent write-down clause, which means if the viability trigger is there. So if the tier one capital of the bank basically drops below a certain amount and the regulator thinks that the bank might go belly up, then additional tier ones can be written down to zero. And that's clearly written in the documents. Mm. As you said, it's important to understand this permanent write-down clause is not the standard in Europe. It is not the standard in Europe. It's the standard maybe in Switzerland and the Swiss regulator is taking the decision to proceed that way but that is not what would happen in Europe, I think. It's it's not even in the clauses in the first place that something would be allowed to happen like that. So that's my first comment. The second comment is, um, okay, so the European banking system um, overall, can this be a loss of confidence? Can we see the same ramifications that we have, the same developments we're seeing in the US, in Europe? And there I see a couple of differences, to be very honest, Andreas. The first is, do we have something like money market funds in Europe? Not really. We don't. We don't, guys. So I challenge you, and I did, to go and look me up for an easy-to-invest T-bill, German, AAA collateral, or Dutch, something like that, like AAA collateral, short-dated government bond ETF of decent size. I challenge you to find it. You'll find one or best two. So the industry is not at all shaped to accommodate large flows away from the deposit, uh, from the banking sector into AAA collateral in Europe, while in the US, it's very simple, as you said, and the rest to allocate into T-bills mm -hmm. and to allocate into money market funds. That's one take. I'll let you comment on that and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say something else. Well, uh, you're spot on. Uh, I mean, I've been advising quite a few people. Uh, I know also people with a lot of money to to try and um, invest in money market funds like setups in Europe. Uh, 
uh, and the bank makes your life very difficult if you want to try to. Uh, it is possible, but you need to buy it on a single security um, <laughs> basis and uh, you need to post a lot of money to get uh, the allowance to do so. Uh, so ultimately it just means that it's not particularly flexible to try and, and, and move your money out of a deposit into a, um, a short-term uh, bill in, in either of the European countries. It's simply very, very tricky to do so. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's impossible, but it's tricky. Uh, and uh, what we at least know from our generation, Elf, if things are <laughs> just a bit cumbersome, we don't do them, um, uh, which is why I think there is a difference between the European situation and the US situation, just given the lack of flexibility here in Europe on, on, on these types of products. Uh, what I wanted to to, um, to say as well uh, in in relation to the discussion on AT1 uh, bonds is that, I mean, already now we see, I think, the spillovers and ramifications to perpetuals overall. Um, uh, we had uh, one of the fund brief banks in, in Germany calling their perpetual, um, was it two weeks, two days ago, uh, which is not something you do in times of no stress. Uh, I mean, you, you certainly do not want to call these perpetuals. Uh, and it, it essentially means that you uh, shift uh, into a higher coupon and then uh, uh, turn it into a, a, a fixed uh, income stream for forever. And um, my point here is that uh, even fund brief banks, uh, even real estate companies with um, uh, issued perpetuals, etc., they 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 are stressed as a consequence of this eighty-one uh, issue in Switzerland. They were probably slightly stressed already, uh, since I mean this hybrid slash perpetual market was already more or less dead, <laughs> I'd say, uh, before uh, the uh, the stress really began, uh, and. I would consider it very unlikely that some of these major uh, real estate companies um, that they're able to uh, to refinance these um, these perpetuals and and, and hybrids at, at at any interesting level for them. So they will call them, uh, or else they will try to obtain bank financing instead, and they cannot do that right now. Yeah, I tend to agree on what you said, and. Uh... Look, the other thing I want to say about the European banking system is that we Europeans do a lot of things suboptimally, but on regulation, we've been much tighter than the US. So in Europe, there is, um, you're forced to report your interest rate risk at a balance sheet level under a stressed scenario. It's a regulatory requirement to do so. So the European Central Bank has stressed um, this on 50 plus European banks. The result is that, yes, of course, banks are exposed negatively to higher interest rates. Banks are in the business of borrowing short and lending longs. By definition, they are exposed to interest rate risk even after using derivatives, even after hedging. But if you look at this stress test, you'll realize that the average European bank is doing okay. I mean, they'll take a hit, but it's not dramatic. But the tails are a bit tricky. There are a few banks that haven't done their homework particularly well, uh, in Europe. So again, it brings me to this bifurcation issue. Here you're looking at overall, a from a liquidity perspective, I think the system holds overall, it doesn't turn into a systemic event, but this confidence problem, this under-regulation in the US, banks that have done their homework much less, banks that have a much concentrated funding base, a very tricky business model, there are some problems in the tails, Andreas, I think. While overall, the system from an aggregate liquidity perspective, I think that's fine. 
but watch out for the tails. I think it's where um, what I would say. Yeah, that's an, that's an absolutely fair um, comment, Elf. And um, there are obviously these outliers in the tails, um, the Silicon Valley banks of, of Europe, if, if, if I may. And uh, those you obviously need to be on the watch for. Uh, I've done some work on it uh, on stenoresearch.com as well, which banks to, 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 to look out for. But what I ultimately want to say is that the liquidity crisis will not be a European one. I, I, I simply struggle to see the perspectives or the underlying fundamentals that could create such a liquidity crisis in Europe, and you can solve it overnight if you want to. But I'm not sure that we will not see a credit crisis in Europe uh, because, <laughs> I mean, uh, if, if we are right that credit standards will be tightened much more and if we're right that some a confidence crisis of some sort will 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 develop out of this then uh european banks with major exposures to real estate and stuff like that will still suffer even though it's not a liquidity yeah. crisis correct so again it's about doing a level head analysis looking at the data not the fear mongering understanding the liquidity backdrops that are, and the regulation backdrops that are different between Europe and the US, but also taking a big picture view on the credit and on the confidence situation. So all of that needs to be put together, Andreas, which makes me want to finish this podcast with how do we see markets? First, a round of applause for both of us that, let's say, by coincidence, we not always have the same view, not nearly, but in this case, let's say we discussed pretty loudly, Japanese yen and treasuries above 4% as something that you might want to want to have in your portfolio if you're looking at a macro cycle as late cycle as it was. Obviously, I didn't predict a banking stress of this sort, not nearly, so I'm not going to say I was right. I'm going to say I was a bit right and a lot lucky mm. in the process. Uh, but um, you also have advocated for the Japanese yen uh, pretty extensively. So let me ask you, if you see the set of market pricing today in markets, whoa, what do you make of it? How do you behave looking at the set of pricing today and in set of information we have as we speak? Uh, when, when it comes to the pricing of uh, U.S. treasuries, front-end bonds in, in the U.S. and um, uh, the SOFR curve, it is... I think I think very very tricky uh, to buy bonds when you look at the pricing, um, because when you look at the pricing, we need a very very rapid uh, um, cutting cycle commencing already just uh, around midsummer and and there on uh, from there on right. Um, you need to be convinced that emergency cuts are upcoming now or very soon to buy front end bonds from here. Uh, I've advocated uh, for such a scenario myself. I think it is worthwhile pursuing it, but you should obviously not place your entire wealth on that view. Um, I, I think there is a clear risk that uh, this turns into a credit crisis and you need emergency cuts and all that. Um, but, I mean, it is, I have to admit, already partly a consensus story when you watch the, the market pricing. Uh, around 100 basis points are priced in uh, worth of cuts just before New Year's, uh, when I checked the screens before we went in here. So you you need five, six cuts uh, to, to, to buy bonds from here just this year. It, 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 we need a crisis for, for that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, pricing to be confirmed. Look, mate, I mean, like, I want to stress something you just said. 
100 basis point of cuts being priced between now and the end of the year and 75 between now and September. So we're not talking about a pause, we're talking about immediate cuts starting straight away. Okay, so that's the modal outcome being priced in markets, which means, especially if you look at the bond market implied volatility, it is extremely high at the short end. And there's like straddles or options trying to capture the implied range that people are pricing for two-year rates are like 300 basis point wide over the next six months to a year. This is ridiculous. Like people don't have any idea. They're just pricing, you know, tails and, and, and outcomes as wide as they can, which may, means a lot of volatility is priced in the front end of bond markets, which needs to sort out a way or another. And it can't stay like this forever, right? We need a final outcome to this to either get the cuts done or even more than what's priced, by the way, because if this turns into a confidence crisis, Andreas, we're cutting rates to 1% very rapidly. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. If this really snowballs the way out, then it has massive reverberations for the job market, a, a consumer confidence. A recession will basically be on the doorsteps if this really unfolds badly. On the other hand, if just nothing happens, no bank goes into receivership at the FDIC in the next two to three weeks. Deposit outflows stop. The markets must come down because where is the trigger? Like, why do you want to pay all this insurance premium away if nothing is happening? So the reality is here, you're looking at a very bimodal outcome. It's either really bad yeah. or it's okay. Yeah. And the market is just pricing a ton of risk premium into that. So my take is very hard to take positions here unless you are super convinced about what the final outcome should be. Yeah. What do you make of, all, of what I just said? Bunch of crap? Probably. <laughs> As always, no. Sorry, but uh, Thank you. I, I, I mean, um, you're right. And I, I've designed my portfolio currently um, as if we are entering a crisis. But I still find weird, po weird pockets of strength. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have equity exposure towards the very duration-intensive sectors, so consumer discretionary, a bit of tech, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. And they've been performing like crazy through this environment, um, which is kind of weird with banks down, uh, is it 15% month, uh, month to date or something like that, if you look at the, the regionals, right, uh, at least. So yeah. point being that... We have this weird scenario right now where uh, there's kind of a QE-like party in, in certain sectors in the equity space while the bond market is screaming uh, that zombies will soon enter <laughs> your your doorsteps and, and stuff like that. I mean, I, I, I honestly think it is very tricky to have a firm conviction given how the market is priced. Uh, so I I, th I think this turns into a, a, a recession very soon, which is why I think I can hold on to my bond positions. But I have to admit that the market has been chasing me like crazy in recent days. Yeah. So look, all we can do, Andreas, is to continue doing a level-headed data-driven analysis because there will be a lot of emotions running high, markets will be pricing extremes. So these are the moments where you need to have a macro process in place. Mm. 
data-driven, level-headed analysis. Let's finish the podcast by saying that, of course, they can find all of that, or at least my utmost attempt at delivering these macro breakdowns, data-driven, level-headed, and actionable investment strategy at themacrocompass.com, and they can also find... Yeah, we track uh, the deposit data on, on a daily basis at stenoresearch.com and try to um, figure out how to position for it. It changes day in and day out. Yeah. So that was it for today, guys. 48 minutes of Andreas and Alf ranting, hopefully giving you some uh, pretty decent backdrop on what's going on here. The rest you find on the Macro Compass and at Stenner Research. Yeah. And we'll talk to you guys again next week. Yes. And hopefully, Elf, um, this was a weekend without a bank failure. Uh, my, my, <laughs> my wife and my, my uh, son would, would actually like a weekend with me. So please, no more bank failures. And they always happen during weekends. You know that. I can back that request. Please, no bank failures over the weekend. Talk to you guys again next Sunday. Bye.